Well, uh, on my way over to China, right before we left, uh, I received word from Megan that some of the missionary teammates of, of hers had read some of my books and uh, including the one I wrote with focus on the family answering the call. And they said, when your father comes, would he be willing to give um, some biblical teaching on the sanctity of human life to pastors in the unregistered or what we call typically here, the underground church in Beijing? So, of course, I said, yes, that to me is like being invited to go to the World Series, right? I mean, we're <laughs> preachers. That's Absolutely. what we do. <laughs> so... Uh, I head over there. We landed on, I think, on a Wednesday and Thursday morning. We were off uh, to this meeting, and I walked into it, and there were 75 pastors in that room, and they had been there for two to three hours singing and praying before I got there. They wanted three days of biblical teaching on the sanctity of human life. And, of course, now I'm dealing with a culture I'm not familiar with. I'm I'm less than 24 hours in China, and I'm teaching 75 and pastors. And a translator. With a translation. So all the way over to China, I am trying to take what I know over, let's say, 20 years' experience at the time and simplify, simplify, mm-hmm. simplify, simplify. Get things down to its basic core message. Get it down to the gospel of life so that you could hear it, obey it, and share it. And I came up with uh, four questions, believing that if people can answer four questions, they will do very well on the issue of abortion, generally speaking. You can always learn more, but like the gospel itself, you can get saved today and share the gospel tomorrow. You may have a lot more yet to learn, but you know enough. And so my four questions were, uh, what does the Bible say about human life, including life in the womb, going back to the image of God, which is the foundation mm-hmm. for everything in the Bible. Everything mm-hmm. is based on the value of human life created in his image. Even the gospel is based on the fact that God sets a value on human life that he doesn't uh, uh, give to other things in his creation. So number two, what does the Bible say about the shedding of innocent blood? Let's go right to the biblical language. If if human life is God's most treasured possession in creation, then how does he protect it? He protects it through his moral law, including thou shalt not murder. Here's the first murder and so on and so forth. And uh, exposing what abortion is. Number three, how do we bring the grace of the gospel to the guilt and the grief of abortion so that men and women experience God's forgiveness and are set free from it? And number four, what has God called us to do to stop the shedding of innocent blood? And do we have examples from the Bible and from church history and from today that we can learn from? And for the last uh, 12 years now, those that's what I do all over the world. We work in 28 different countries right now, but we start in China. And we start with those 75 pastors teaching those four questions over two days. And what I found is that... Uh, on the second day of training, two of the Christian women leaders that were at that training, they spent all night with their neighbor going over the scriptures I had taught them from question one and question two and brought their neighbor to the second day of training. She was pregnant with her second child, which was against the law. Her husband had abandoned her in order to preserve his job, which was true. If you didn't mm-hmm. comply, you would lose your job. It's, a, it's a, an enforcement mechanism for the one-child policy. 
And these two women said to me, never forget it. It was such a beautiful moment. They said, now, Pastor John, I don't want you to worry about this lady. We spent all night with her, and we're going to be like the midwives of Egypt. <laughs> Instantly, I understood what they were saying. That was just like the Israelites were being forced to kill their baby boys. They identify with that story, and they said, we're going to be like the midwives. We're going to stick with her and make sure that her baby is born. And all of a sudden, I realized I have nothing more to add to these two women. I've got to go to get the other 1.6 billion people in China because mm-hmm. these two women get it now. Mm-hmm. They're all, they're completely they're graduates of the four questions. They're out to rescue women and couples from the violence of abortion, and they'll do whatever it takes to do it. Go back to your four questions because yes. there was uh, your second question was, what does the Bible say about shedding the blood of innocence? Right. Well, the second question is where you get actually show them that the law forbids the shedding of innocent blood as a highest priority, that we're guilty if we shed it and we're guilty if we don't do anything to stop it. Okay. But let's back up again a second. You've several times made a distinction between the reception that the condemnation of bloodshed of innocence receives in America versus other countries. Yeah. You've brought that up multiple times. If you went through those four questions with any conservative Reformed church in America, mm-hmm. people would sit there, and the pastor would be thinking, come on, can we, can we get to something of substance? Everybody knows this stuff. Well, they would in America, perhaps, because, again, they're conditioned to, to filter everything about abortion through their political lens. For people who always say we won't, don't want to get into politics, that is the political lens that they're using to filter and to dismiss. But that's not the case overseas in a place Why? like China. So I want you to compare and contrast Christians in America to Christians in because, China. Because, for example, in China, there's just a, more of a, a childlike spirit that says that if God says the shedding of innocent blood— is the demarcation between between uh, God being patient and God's judgment coming. When you get even to the point where you shed, you even sacrifice your sons and your daughters, <laughs> the fear of God settles in on people in a way that I don't see happening in the United States. They weep. They fall down on their knees. They begin to weep. They begin to wail. Okay, When you show people in China a two-minute video of what abortion is, along with the Word of God that shows them what it is, it produces a heartfelt repentance from the leaders themselves. Because again, in China, many of the pastors are also post-deported because they're, they've lived for the last 30 years trying to show the government that they're not rebellious against the government. They're not trying to overthrow the government. So the idea of obeying the government was a big deal in China uh, when I got there in 2010, they had spent their time trying to show that we're good citizens, mm-hmm. but that meant that they had said nothing and they had complied with the one child policy for many, many decades. So when they began to see that abortion is the shedding of innocent blood of their own children, that God forbids it, that it's, that it's damnable in his eyes, mm-hmm. the, the, the repentance is deep and genuine and real. And the testimonies just begin. That's where I say, I've seen in places all over the world what I saw in my own little congregation when we did what Paul says, 
have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but rather expose them and let them see the blood. I had the delight going to Taiwan to teach at the Chinese Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Taipei, but also to preach and to work with uh, Joel and Judy Linton. Judy is Taiwanese. Her father's a famous uh, political leader in that country. And, uh, and so we lived in an apartment in their house and got to know uh, people there, but also in my class, it was mostly Zoom and probably a third to two thirds of the class was over in China. And I offered to do counseling and I had an excellent translator, Mark Cool, who had just graduated from Greenville Seminary who did all the translating, including sitting for four hours, many weeks, counseling different people on Zoom, mm. which is about as exhausting and enervating a work as you can do. Counseling is already exhausting. Right. But then over Zoom and the people that were over in China. And honestly, I would say the vast majority of people in that class from Malaysia, from Singapore, from Taiwan, from China, uh, one of the guys had spent years in Thailand. And I would say that although it's easy to mistake the fear of God for the respect they pay to an older man, you remember you said about the image of God, you said everything flows from that. You remember right. saying that? Right. And what I realized is if I could just give them the basics of God's creation— what uh, John Murray in Principles of Conduct refers to as creation mandates, mm -hmm. all right? If I could just give them to them, they were eye-opening to these students, many of whom had spent their lives in Presbyterian churches of the most orthodox variety. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Absolutely, yeah. And mm -hmm. then their lives would change. I mean, they would just say, okay, I realize that I have to be the father of this household and that I have to bear the responsibility of fatherhood and be the head of my home. And the wife would say, oh, okay, well, my husband needs, I need to submit to him. And it was like a new thought. So I confirm <laughs> right. what you say, that there is something, do you know something? Years ago, I went over to Africa and spent some time in Africa. And it was back during the time of the deaths of AIDS. Mm. And the place I was staying was down the road from the main road through the town, and the town was Endola. It's the second largest town after Lusaka. We regularly see the, the parades of funerals of AIDS victims going down the road. And when I came back to the United States, do you know what I thought? It's really weird. But I thought, I can't stand the poverty of the United States of America. Now, I know that sounds crazy. That was a guttural feeling. That was not some intellectual expression that sounds like the Puritans, you know? <laughs> no, it was that I realized that there was nothing of depth, that the value and beauty of life and the horror of death had been robbed from the church in America. And so we went through the motions, and since then, the last couple of decades, there's one recurring phrase that goes through my mind about the church in America, and the phrase is the unbearable lightness of our being. 
I would concur, which is why there's something quite beautiful and uh, powerful about going to a place like China and especially working with the unregistered churches there. Uh, by and large, it's a still a countryside movement, millions and millions of believers. Barefoot pastors. <laughs> uh, it's become much more of an urban movement in the last 20 years. But again, these, you got to think in terms of generations. And uh, the people have a childlike attitude, and it's a delight to open the Word of God to them. And, and we're teaching mostly pastors. Now, again, in a place like China, they haven't gone to a Wheaton College, and they haven't gone to a Gordon-Conwell Seminary or a Fuller or whatever, okay? And so when they get a chance to hear someone who can carefully explain the context of Scripture and what its meaning is, they will sit from nine in the morning till nine at night and ask if you could spend a couple more hours after mm. that. And 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 it's just you're, you're you're dealing with hungry, hungry people who are very responsive. And even a place like Colombia, when we were there a couple of years ago, we were teaching about three hundred pastors in in Colombia. And I remember when we were dealing with the second question. In the second question, what does the Bible say about the shedding of innocent blood? You get to lay out this idea of the law, that God protects human life by his primarily through his moral law, and that when you violate that law, as we see in Genesis 4, it makes God angry. So we're setting up the gospel, okay? And part of that then is we have to say, what is abortion? Is it involving the shedding of innocent blood? And... uh and we and does that mean it's child sacrifice? So there's a passage in the Bible that talks about uh, do not sh- uh, sacrifice your children to Moloch, and then it goes on to say, and do not close your eyes to it. Leviticus okay? twenty, exactly. So we we had all these three hundred pastors in the room, and we were looking at one in Jeremiah, one in Ezekiel, and the one in Leviticus. And I said to uh, I pointed to a pastor. I said, now tell me what this passage forbids. And they said, it forbids you to mm. sacrifice your children. I said, what mm. else does it? And they couldn't find it. And they couldn't find it. And we went on for like five or six minutes asking one pastor after another after another, what else does it forbid? And they couldn't see it. They couldn't see huh. the, the other negative that you can't close your eyes to. And finally... The most significant pastor in that room, the one who oversees many other pastors, stood up and began, he came forward and he began, he grabbed some other brothers and he started weeping and sobbing because he recognized for the, really for the first time that what was being condemned here was not just the shedding of innocent blood, but saying nothing about it or doing nothing about it making your peace with it. And when it finally dawned on him, and we as teachers were just sitting there somewhat stunned, but it was a revelation to us of how blind we are in our times to this other aspect. Mm. We, when people say, I'm pro-life, they, they, they want to say, I'm against abortion. They never mean I'm committed to stopping the shedding of innocent blood wherever I see it happening, because that leads to actions like the Good Samaritan or like the the uh, the midwives in Egypt. It leads to direct rescue and intervention. But our takeaway was we saw in Colombia, as we've seen in other places, that pastors were were struck down when they recognized their own 
guilt over mm. their silence. And from that point on, again, a little mini awakening starts mm. to spread within with among the leaders. When the leader of the leaders begins to repent openly and with tears, it opens up everybody else to be able to do the same. And it births a movement in which they take these four questions and they begin to teach them to fellow pastors and to their churches. And I'm sitting here having a conversation with you as your father-in-law says things that you and I rejoice in. Yeah. I mean, this is so, I don't even want to say encouraging. I don't want to say uplifting. I just want to say this is so healing. <laughs> but it seems to me that the leaders that we respect today primarily are leaders who carefully hedge us in as to what we should not repent of. In other words, when you look at who rises to the top of the pastors in America, with the exception of your namesake <laughs> of John, I do not see us lifting men into our pulpits and into leadership over pastors who will lead us in repentance. I just don't see it. Yeah, that's true. Even when we have a repentance movement, uh, if you remember the promise keepers, uh -huh. yeah. yep. it started off with a bang. And I remember going there and seeing some things, and they did not want to address abortion. And I wrote Coach <laughs> McCarthy a letter, and I said, you will not see awakening among mm -hmm. men until you puncture this. Mm -hmm. And he wrote me a letter back saying, I agree with you, but we can't bring it up politically. And I said, well, there's the end of that movement. Okay, <laughs> It'll reach so high, and then it won't go any further because the leaders will not cross that threshold and bring it to what will bring the real repentance and 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 reconciliation between men, uh, husbands and wives over what is ground zero in their marriage. <laughs> really I love is. that way of putting it. You know that Wayne and I went to Soldier's Field where they had one of their events and met with all the top executives of Promise Keepers because... Promise Keepers was silencing speakers if they brought up the authority of husbands in the home. They would silence them. And so we went up there to try to explain to them that this was, you know, as an old hippie, this is bad karma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Anyhow, we sat up in their box at the top of the field mm. uh, as the Promise Keepers event. And the executives were there and just the smugness and, you know, skybox and, and Wayne and I were, you know, it was like a joke. It was a joke. And what we realized there, and they basically told us, they said, well, listen, you know, we shut that down anytime we can. We understand your concerns and, 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 and privately we agree with you, but that just <laughs> would not sell to our crowd. And then they said, we said, well, what about Tony Evans? Well, of course. He always preached that mm -hmm. uh -huh. and of course they couldn't shut him down because right. he had that ace in the hole right right, <laughs> you know? right. he was oh. african-american uh -huh. and it was so encouraging to us that he used that ace in the hole that he possessed by yeah. accident of birth just see those issues of manhood and womanhood and abortion 
And so, you, in fact, you just used that expression. What was that expression you just used? That abortion is uh, the ground zero. In, yeah, the in ground zero of yeah. marriage, yes. Because it's a nexus of physical intimacy, yes. of covenant union, of God's fruitfulness, of male and female. Yes. And, 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 and it leaves women angry at their husbands for failure to protect them and their children, even if they were the ones advocating yeah, Even for it. if they were. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. And the men, uh, in effect, empty themselves again because they fail to protect their children. Yeah. And then they don't know what to do with it because the culture says it's a freedom thing. And so there's no after discussion. Once it's done, Men stop talking about it, and women never stop thinking about it. That's and so it just goes on year after That's year right. after year after year, disabling that marriage. And you can go to church all day long, but again, it's ground zero. And until you shine some light and you bring the blood of Christ to it, it stays as the unspeakable, uh, unspoken wound between the two of them. What? What is your reaction? To all this? Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about the PCA where we spent decades. That's where I grew up. I would say, uh, I was just thinking there that those churches are full of people crying out in some part of their hearts. Maybe they hid it away a long time ago. But they're crying out one of two things or both things. Stop comforting me. Stop educating me intellectually on doctrine. Will someone please tell me my sin? Will someone please tell me my sin? And then tell me it can be forgiven, of course. Don't just tell me my sin. But tell me my sin. No. No, we won't. We will not tell you your sin. If you start a fire in our church, we'll have to deal with you on some level. I guess... If you commit adultery, well, that's a mess. But otherwise, we're not going to tell you your sin. We'll comfort you with the grace of Jesus, which is no comfort because you haven't told me my sin. We'll educate you on the doctrine of justification. We'll tell you that Jesus is gentle and lowly more than he's (laughs) anything else. (laughs) Which is no comfort. It's not a comfort. Well, that's the point. When you're under guilt, you're not comforted by people assuring you of the love of God. You're comforted by the knowledge that God agrees with your conscience. That's right. (laughs) After I moved to Bloomington, hoping to to go to the ministry school there, now New Geneva Academy, which was a, it was a contested issue whether or not I would be admitted, and for good reason. But Tim and I were having coffee, and I, I started crying over my people in my former church Mm. that I was concerned for pastorally, hadn't known how to help them, or in some cases simply hadn't had any courage to help them. I wasn't, you know, a leader in my church in any formal way. But it's hard to to talk about simply because I owe a debt of gratitude to that church and its leaders, Mm -hmm. and I love them. Mm -hmm. Um, But over time... uh, I was there in that church 10 years, lived in the Pacific Northwest 10 years. I I saw things. I saw things I felt. I saw people's grief. I learned about their marriages. 
I saw how their kids were doing. But those people, those issues did not rise to the levels of fires within the church. Um, now, they were, they were sins that, they were sins and problems that were causing terrible suffering in those families and for those children in deep harm constantly. Mm. Mm. But they were not rising to the level of fires to be put out by church leadership because that kind of thing wasn't done. And your cheers were not over the suffering of the sheep as much as they were over the absence of care of the shepherds. Yeah, that's, that's right. And so I want to focus that because we must admit the truth of the diagnosis that John has given us here about the church in America. Well, and what I just said was also, that was my pain for many years. I'd say, someone mm. tell me my guilt, mm. please, like stop. I was comforted and I was educated and boy, was I educated. Mm. Will someone please tell me my guilt? And that is why I went to Bloomington. Mm. It was a culture of, you can tell us your guilt. We'll tell you your guilt. So anyhow, coming back to China, what actually happened when you went over for your vacation? Then you, you ended up going back so, a number of times. So what happens in a place like China is that when something exciting happens among the pastors, they get on the phone and... So by the end of our second day of teaching, uh, I had three other invitations. Come over to this group. Mm. There's 30. Can you come on Sunday? Come here. Come there. So our two weeks vacation with Megan turned out to be about seven days of of teaching life and using these four questions. How tired were you? Oh, not at all. It was the greatest vacation so of my life. So it was exhilarating. Right? I mean, yeah, of course it was. I mean, for me, this is... Again, I, I would rather do that than see the Great Wall of China, okay? It's a bunch of bricks, a bunch of people died building the thing, okay, so fine. I get up there, I went up, saw the Great Wall, came back down, went back to teaching. So this is who I am. This is what I love to do. But as a result of this, among the the uh, 75 pastors, there was young 28, 29-year-old house church pastor who had come to know the Lord in Anhui province, where the great awakening in China took place, it was in the Anhui province when he was 17. And his house church pastor had risen, become the uncle or the CEO of the largest network of underground churches in all of China, probably somewhere between 10 and uh, 12 million people in this network of house churches. So this young pastor calls up this uncle. So you're, you're a brother, but he's called the uncle. And says, uh, uncle, uh, we've received this training and it's changing the people in our church. And we've already started to rescue mothers. And we've helped one mother know, come to know the Lord through her crisis and so on and so forth. And starts telling the uncle about this training called the four questions. So the uncle says, would you please invite this American pastor to come and see me. Well, I had gone back to, to Boston at this point in time. And uh, then I get a call. Uh, actually, I was living in Atlanta at that time. And uh, I get a call saying there's an uncle who oversees the largest network of underground churches in China, and he would like to see you. So I got on a plane. I flew all the way to Shanghai for a 25-minute meeting with the uncle. Because I figured anybody who has access to that many people, I should go over and talk to. 
And uh, I did. I met him at the airport. And right there, we began to plot out how could we train pastors in a way that they could immediately hear it, obey it, and share it one mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Don't make it too complicated. We don't mm-hmm. need more experts mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> My Chesterton philosophy is anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Absolutely. Is what he said. Okay. <laughs> so the point being, we don't want to teach. We don't need more experts. We need people to hear it, obey it, and be able to share it adequately sufficiently, not expertly, but just enough to get the job done. And so we, we came up with a plan to start training in major cities around China. And he would give the word and we would immediately show up, let's say in Chengdu, China, famous for the pandas in that part of China. And we would have a group of maybe 75 pastors in the room. And then we would stay there a whole week because all week long, new new gatherings would just be formed on the spot. And uh, uh, I came home from that vacation, uh, went back there for the second visit, and during that process realized that this was becoming a real real redirection of my life. Not so much in terms of the direction, but in terms of the arc, okay? Mm -hmm. From the U.S., where I had poured out everything I had and had hit, kind of the ceiling wall Mm. after wall after wall uh, to going overseas and saying, let's expand the uh, pro-life mission to rescue the innocent into a world missions movement. And I just found it a lot more fruitful. I mean, I had done everything I can. I gave 20 years to the U.S. Mm -hmm. trying to help my fellow pastors, writing the book with Focus Mm -hmm. on the Family, Mm -hmm. writing some other books that I had written, organizing uh, communities of churches around pregnancy intervention, showing them that this was an entry point for the gospel bill before abortion. Mm -hmm. The entry point for the gospel is let's trust God for our daily bread. It's a provision. It's a faith crisis. Every abortion is a crisis of faith. Okay. And after abortion, there's no adequate solution anywhere in psychology that's going to help with the blood stain of abortion other than the gospel itself, properly and fully explained to people that can wash and cleanse their conscience. So I gave all of that, and then I just decided from now on, I'm going to go to the places of greatest need where I see the greatest opening, and that was in China. And I just finished my 30th trip to China in August, and we have seen the Networked in China, train over uh, somewhere between two and three million people. Uh, the believers in China, uh, it's just an exciting place to work. Now, give them your website. Tell them how that they can support this work. Well, if you'd like to see uh, the four questions, uh, it's a 10-page document. So I took my six books. And I reduced it to 10 pages. So if we can't get it done in 10 pages, that is too complicated. So that four questions document, you can go to passionlife.org and just you'll see. Not dot com, but dot org. Dot org. And you'll see a blue ribbon there with resource. And you can click on that and you can download the four questions uh, answering the crisis of abortion with the gospel of life. And it's just four questions and scripture pretty much. Uh, there's another document there on how to teach the four questions to a small group. Uh, the other books I've written that are now available free as a PDF are are, are on there. Uh, the Great Work of the Gospel, which is the first book I wrote. 
is available as a free PDF. I wrote a book on manhood and womanhood called Doing Things Right in Matters of the Heart that's also free as a download there. Um, and so all of our work is available. The resources are right there on passionlife.org. So that that's where people can go. They can download those sources. Everything there is, is available uh, without charge and it can be copied and shared without any limitation. Okay, now... Let's show that we can disagree without crying. Okay. <laughs> so Or yelling. So we were talking on the phone. We had a long conversation where it really was the beginning of our friendship. Even though it was recent, we've known each other, but not. And so John was talking about our uh, Evangel Presbytery book we've just published called Abortion in the Church. And we were talking about some of the things that he appreciated, but also things he didn't agree with. And it was interesting that the thing he brought up that he didn't agree with was, and I think it would just be better for you to just explain what we said generally and then why you disagree with it. Yeah, yeah. There's a portion in the book in which there's a pretty severe criticism of all the, and that's where in the book I had the greatest pause because I thought it was... uh, uh, a criticism that w- wasn't thought through well enough. Yeah. And that's my fundamental concern about it. But the criticism was that all the nationally recognized pro-life organizational leaders had come together to write a letter affirming that they were not looking for le- to pass legislation that would punish women for abortion. And your argument was a moral argument about moral agency and that if we're going to treat women as as adults who are responsible for their mm-hmm. actions, that they should be uh, prosecuted the way you might prosecute a, a woman for killing a two-year-old, which has a certain logic to it. You say that's a fair assessment of what your argument is. Yeah, although as you repeat it back to me, I don't know whether it's because what you read was what I wrote or because of your criticism, I was more concerned about them condemning and denying it than I was about, you know, to me, there's a difference between passing laws against sodomy and arguing against laws that have been passed against sodomy. Mm. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? And so I was actually watching their agency in trying to speak against the punishment. I was not concerned that punishments i knew okay i knew that they would never be passed i knew that i just didn't like people who know what abortion is to say that they would never punish women for having an abortion right because i had in my brain i didn't tell you this on the phone but i had in my brain this case in new england under the puritans where they actually executed a woman for aborting her child it was a common practice Mm. across the ages Mm. and that was in my brain i didn't move it so you tell them now why you why you were disappointed and thought that that was wrong because well hmm. we're now we're talking about uh how we pass laws and how mm-hmm. we bring build consensus in a, in a democratic culture Absolutely. as opposed to china okay yeah. so and since the dobbs decision as you know there have been about 13 state referendums on abortion, and we've lost every single one of them, including the one just last week. So 
as much as I favor the end of Roe v. Wade, I also know that in any political history, there's a kind of a, a, a kickback. And my template for evaluating much of what happens in the pro-life world in terms of laws and policy the template is the abolitionist movement mm. from 150 years ago, 200 years ago. And so the fundamental starting point for me is that the just powers of a government are by the consent of the people. You can't pass a law that you can't get 50% or more. Otherwise, you have another dictatorship, right? If you, have, mm-hmm. if you can impose a law without the consent of the people, then you've recreated here what we ran away from in England, consent. So to me, in the world of politics, there's a reason I'm not in politics, but in the world of politics, you have to, by design, find out what you can do to get 50% of the vote and nail it down. In that battle, then, there are going to be arguments that the opposition is going to use to scare everybody. And one of them that's operating today is the very same one that was operating during the abolition movement. And that is the, if you are going to outlaw slavery back then, the argument that was used against them was they're going to punish all the former slaveholders and anybody that was involved, they're going to punish you and put you in prison. Well, of course, the abolitionist movement didn't really want to do that. They, they were not out to punish people. They were out to stop slavery. But it was used as a weapon to mobilize the forces against the abolition movement. And that's the same thing today. There's a, a, a segment within the pro-life community that is out to say we must pass laws that, that absolutely end all abortion, which we all agree with, and punish women. And the opposition is using that in every every single referendum to make people recoil. Now, maybe in a hundred years after abortion is outlawed, the idea that you would punish people for doing that might be more acceptable, but not now. In the same way that we might punish people who are kidnapping and turning people into slaves. We would punish them now in a way that we wouldn't in the 1950s, I mean, in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. So that's my argument is that that the leaders of the pro-life movement, in my view, had no other choice but to come out and say, no, mm-hmm. we are not. That's not our agenda. Our agenda is to magnify the humanity of the unborn child and under the principle of equal protection for all people born and unborn to protect them through law. That's our agenda. And over time, people will come to agree with that. And after that, then we'll have another. You and I talked about the abolitionist movement, and we both agreed that we do believe in incrementalism. And we could have a long discussion about the issue of the consent of the governed. It's it's a fascinating concept across history because my conviction is that democracies often lack the consent of the governed because they've stupefied the governed and lied to them. So when people talk about stealing the election of President Trump, I think it was stolen. I think it was stolen from before he was inaugurated because the Democrats in the media and big tech never stopped lying Mm -hmm. about his election, about his commitments, 
about his racism, about his Russiagate. It just, the lies were inundating. And so then you get down to my uh, to my grandson telling me last night that the election was stolen in Chicago with, with, uh, with Kennedy because the mafia helped and they helped because they were going to be able to, to live without the, the, uh, you know, without the government using its powers to bring them to justice. Okay. And so which is a worse stealing of an election, Chicago or Biden? To me, it's inconsequential to discuss the difference. If okay. you stupefy your electorate, right. if you lie to them consistently, then they are not exercising their democratic privileges. They are simply fooled, credulous, weak. They can't think. They can't write. That's where we are in America today. But going back to abolitionists, when I graduated, when I was at Gordon-Conwell, and then when I graduated, I read a whole bunch of biographies of William Lloyd Garrison, mm-hmm. who, one of the principal abolitionists. It fascinated me to see that William Lloyd Garrison repented of incrementalism and abolition. What he did was he had been a he had been a colonizer, and that was a movement that was sort of the beginning of the abolitionist movement, but it wasn't abolitionism. It was that they would buy the slaves out of slavery and send them back, and the principal place they sent them was what is called Liberia. Liberia right. Okay. And then he saw that this incrementalism wasn't working, and so he gave a speech in which he said, I, I repent of my former compromise by buying slaves and sending them to Africa. And then he said, from now on, it is no union with slaveholders. I am an abolitionist. And the thing I got such a kick out of was that when my parents were starting university in New England, lived in Cambridge, what church did they go to? It went to Bark Street Church under Harold John Ockengay. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It was in the basement of that church that William Garrison gave that that message, repenting of his increment. And so this my, was my church in Boston. I was an elder there for a number of years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you look at this issue and I think that there is more need for debate on how and when to engage in incrementalism in our work against abortion than there is anywhere else. But the only way it works is if we actually stop being bombastic about the issue. When men say, oh, he's such a compromiser and he doesn't really, he isn't really pro-life. I, we had the budget director of the state of Indiana under uh, Mike Pence mm-hmm. in our church as an elder. And that man consistently said to me, and he didn't use the phrase, but what he was saying is politics is the art of the possible. Totally. And so that's the argument you're making that it doesn't matter how I feel about the moral agency of women and what feminism has done to it, which is what I argued about. What you have to do is something called real politics. You know, you have to be willing to look at the mess we're in and be willing to take steps that may not be a full expression of your convictions theologically, individually, and morally. And yet, can we please take a step towards protecting more of the children? Well, that is the debate today. 
And again, I mean, in, in that regard, Lincoln was a genius. Even the Emancipation Proclamation is is the art of compromise. Yes. It was a little bit here and a little bit there, and we'll neglect this, and we'll forget about that, and we'll pretend we don't see this. You know, but it, he was moving things along, and he was building a consensus. Because in our democracy, you have to get 50% plus one mm-hmm. in order to have a consensus or a just policy. So I think that is the reality. I have friends and people I admire in the current abolition movement, but I just see that they are actually, in my view, they're doing us a disservice. And I think that um, uh, the next year is going to be a watershed year, year because what happened recently in Ohio showed us and showed the advocates of abortion that they have an open field to go to every red state and everything else mm-hmm. and put this on the ballot as a as a lever to drive the that side to the to the polls. Mm-hmm. So they're not even using it necessarily over abortion. They're using it as a motivator for the larger uh, mm-hmm. population vote and for the next set of elections. And I don't necessarily think that we within the conservative pro-life movement have come up with the proper messaging at this point, but it's complicated because we have uh, the, the, these voice of condemnation that any, any pro-life legislation at 15 weeks or 25 weeks, whatever it is, is a moral compromise. And that the, and that's even worse. Not only is it a compromise, but you know you're a compromiser and that you're really just in it for the, for, for the money as if people are in the pro-life <laughs> movement for the money, you know, or the <laughs> reputation or they're, they're, they're the part of the institution. And my experience in the pro-life is that very, very few people are in this because they're getting a lot of uh, institutional support. They're in it because of the moral crisis of abortion and a sense of calling. That's just my experience and interaction it's with It's absolutely people. my experience. I knew Joe Scheidler. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> when they fired the RICO suits against him, I also knew the attorney that did pro bono. He was an antitrust lawyer, and he did pro bono work until his firm in Loop in Chicago told him he couldn't continue to do it because, and and they yeah. just they they bankrupted Scheidler. Yeah, and you think of Joan Andrews, what she suffered. Right. Uh, you think of the godly people who have been involved. You think of Joe Sobrin, who was such a godly man yeah. despite being Roman Catholic. Um, I told you that this budget director of the state of Indiana and I and another man, Charlie Dugdale, we all drove out for his wake, for yeah. Joe Sobin's wake when he died. Um, and the pregnancy centers across the country. I mean, none of these, you can go to the biggest organizations in this country that are pro-life and they're not, they're not money machines. Oh. They really aren't. I mean, the amount of money that gets put into the pro-life cause is extremely small. <laughs> uh, and, and that reflects my guess is that 97% of all the pro-life dollars go to American pro-life work. And we represent 3% yeah. of abortion worldwide. So 97% of the moral crisis of abortion is a world missions issue. But still, even if you consider all 97% of all the pro-life dollars given, it's still a small amount of money. So I just, I'm a, I'm a little defensive mm-hmm. uh, of these leaders and their reputation. I think they needed to, to make a statement uh, 
that our agenda is to stop the shedding of innocent blood and to provide equal protection for all people born and unborn, no matter their Mm -hmm. size, their level of development, Mm -hmm. uh, their environments, so on and so forth. And that that is what our ideal as as a nation is. That's the agenda. All the other stuff will take care of itself over time. All right. We need to bring this to a conclusion Mm -hmm. in the next few minutes. And I would like to uh, talk about a couple of things. Um, First of all, you and I are convinced about something that is implicit, but I want to make explicit. And that is that in the words of uh, Herman Melville and Moby Dick, he has a he has a he has a pastor preach a sermon that he records in the book right before they take off to go wailing. And in that sermon, Melville writes, "The pulpit leads the world." I am convinced, and have been my entire ministry, that the condition of the United States of America, morally and ethically, is a result of the absence of biblical preaching in the pulpits of American churches. And that if we want to see the Ohio Initiative shut down, if we want to see anti-abortion become the culture of our country, it must begin in the house of God. And it's not beginning in the house of God because we have denied our sheep the knowledge and the faith to repent of their bloodshed of their children. We have robbed them of repentance. And I think they've even become more timid since the end of Roe v. Wade. Not more bold, more timid. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that is? Because it was easy to talk about pro-life knowing that you had the covering of Roe v. Wade. No, that's fascinating. Making sure that nothing would ever I thought happen. I had a corner on thinking perverse. Absolutely, it's true now. Because now what you say can make a difference. Make oh, a difference in your, in your church, oh. in your community, in your state. So you either get into the fight. Oh, my goodness. Whereas before, you could see all kinds of things. You know, we're we're... We're against Roe v. Wade when we want to do this. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you had the safety net of Roe v. Wade in place. And now the, uh, the courts took that away and they're saying, you want democracy? You've got it. Now you're going to get exactly what you mobilize for. Oh man. <laughs> so the, the heart is of our nation is really for the first time is being revealed. I think you're right. Wow, that's good. It really that's is very, true. That's very helpful. It's true. Absolutely. I mean, it's awful, yeah. but yeah. Now, of course, we cannot bring this to an end without. My wife grew up in a family of 10. So Mary Lee and I both grew up in homes with godly mothers mm-hmm. and fathers who had children and looked at fruitfulness as a gift from God. What we notice today is that there is no talk of fruitfulness being the DNA of the universe, which if you read scripture, it's just relentless. It's about trees, it's about animals, it's about the womb, it's about, you know, it's just relentless, and there's no mention of this. And so Mary Lee and I have come to recognize in our lives that contraception or birth control, depending on what you mean and what you're saying, 
is maybe the very center of the bloodshed because what it does is it creates a context in which you have to have an argument in favor of your next child. Rather than receiving it as a blessing from the Lord, children are a gift from the Lord, you have to justify it. You have to speak of it as stewardship. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis. You have <laughs> to decide how many children can you educate well? How many children can you love well? How many right. children can you read the Bible and pictures for little eyes to? Right. And so in this book called Abortion in the Church, which we have just published, you can get a hard copy, any of the e-texts you want, which... Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, that John will be able to give us some publicity outside of uh, Evangel Presbytery. Nevertheless, we had a bunch of uh, PhDs in biochemistry, and we and also statisticians, economists, all with a terminal degree, all very well published. Yes. And we probed deeply into the issue of hormonal birth control, into hormonal uh, patches into the pill, into all these other things. And the deeper we got into it, and we had these guys review and produce, they actually helped write. They actually uh, got us copies of uh, articles that they felt were pertinent. What we realized is it is likely that there is a, a parallel number of abortions that are caused in the first week of pregnancy, as there are due to surgical and chemical later, which all the statistics, the articles, everything are in the book, although now we've gone ahead and and documented even more. Mm -hmm. But here, here's the thing I want to say about this. I was deep into writing this and researching it and talking and getting emails from these different scholars. When I preached a sermon, and the sermon was on Elizabeth and Mary. And all of a sudden, I read the text that I've read over and over and over again, because I've been a pastor during Christmas mm -hmm. forever, <laughs> you know? And I notice that it says that Mary has her pregnancy revealed to her by the angel— and that he says to her, future tense, you will be pregnant. You okay? will conceive and give birth. You will conceive and give birth. How can this be since I am a virgin? Well, the Holy Spirit will, again, future tense, come upon you. Correct. Okay. Then it says that immediately she got up and went. To visit Elizabeth. To bi visit Elizabeth. And by the way, we don't know whether she was her cousin or her aunt or right. whatever, but we extrapolate it was her cousin, but we might be wrong. It says in the hill country, it doesn't give the location. And so again, we extrapolate, we have hypotheses. It may have been this place. It may have been that place, but certainly it was a few days away. Correct. From Nazareth down to the outside of Jerusalem. Yeah. Somewhere. Wherever it was. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I was reading, um, Tom Torrance, the Scottish uh, theologian, a talk he had given, and I'm reading his thing, which we cite in this. It's it's very hard to get a hold of, but we actually provide the citation and the quote. And he says, when our Lord became incarnate, he became incarnate as an embryo. And all of a sudden, 
it's like waves are going over me. And I'm realizing that Jesus was an embryo, an embryo traveling up the fallopian tubes, seeking to implant himself into the womb of his mother, Mary. And that when she got out to Elizabeth's house and both the babies jumped, or no, John jumped, Jesus was present. Right. How old was Jesus at that time? Somewhere between a few minutes, if she conceived before that, or Mm -hmm. uh, about four days at the most, about the size of a period at the end of a sentence, at the most. Okay, now listen. (laughs) A huge number of the abortions are never counted by any pro-life organization. And those are the abortions that are caused by the taking of hormones, which do work by suppressing ovulation and do work by uh, being hostile to the sperm and its ability to fertilize. Right. But also clearly have a significant agency, which we actually go into the numbers of, of obstructing, of rendering the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, to be very thin and therefore hostile to the attachment of that Correct. human being that bears the image of God, that was the age of Jesus. Right. If the pulpit leads the world, if judgment should begin in the house of God, that until we repent of suppressing the gift of fruitfulness, there will be no change. There will be no change. And we will give an accounting to God for what we have done, and it will be bloodshed. It will not simply be a misinten- an unintentional mistake in our stewardship decisions. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, I really appreciated particularly that development in the book. Uh, and Ben and I have gone over it several times, uh, the issue of contraception and the hormonal contraception particularly, because I think that, again, in terms of the evangelical world, we're so undereducated, we're so behind the times, mm-hmm. and we don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> we don't want to know. There are very, very few evangelical people in medicine that want to know any mm-hmm. of this because they make a great deal of money, and their whole reputation as medical professionals requires them to dispense hormonal contraceptions. Uh, so there's a whole built-in bias. Plus, it sounds like you're talking like our Catholic friends all of a sudden. But the reality is that only the Catholics have done any serious thinking about contraception as a worldview, let alone the science of it. Okay, how it's working, does it really prevent conception mm. or does it, in effect, work as an abortifacient? That's one mm-hmm. question. But the larger question is, why are we so anti-child? Why do we have to calculate? Why can't we receive? Why can't we welcome? It's a mentality. It goes back to the cultural mandate that you're talking about. And that is, in my view, that the the biblical view of receiving children and seeing that that is where your treasure is, that's where your wealth is generated, uh, lies 100% out of phase with our material culture. I mean, it's a worldview crisis right there. And so I think that you were you did well to emphasize that even if you set aside abortion, even if we won the pro-life argument about abortion 
per se, we still have millions and millions of examples of children being killed through these hormonal contraceptions that we haven't really even begun to face. Yeah, China says they've killed 350 million children through their state apparatus of abortion. Right. But then they release the stat that they've also implanted 350 million IUDs. Right. And there's no question that IUDs work in an abortifacient nature and don't simply prevent conception. There's no question. Right. That's what's clearest. And so you're talking about numbers that boggle the mind. This is why with Wheaton College condemning Buzzwell for not having blacks and then you, you have the board of trustees and the president just oblivious to the horror of the bloodshed of innocence that is going on on their campus, in their professors' own bedrooms and bathrooms. And, oh, no, 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 we can't bring that up. We have to condemn the enrollment policies a yeah. century earlier. And I just got an email from your daughter talking about how horrible it was trying to have any witness against abortion on the campus of Wheaton. <laughs> she was an oppressed woman. Oh, she, she faced an uphill battle for sure. I mean, it was it awful was, what she went through. And, of course, even my own institutions that I've graduated, they have never invited me to come to their campus in all these years. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, those are the particular cross-bearing uh, areas of what it means to be standing for life today is you're not going to get a lot of pat on the backs and you are in a prophetic role. In many cases, you you've got to raise questions that people are uncomfortable with. My only uh, confidence is that yes, but that's where the, when you expose the abominable things mm. of this world, you reveal people's, uh, to people an opportunity to experience the true grace of the gospel and you get to empower the gospel in a way that the culture is desperately mm -hmm. in need of. So that's uh, where I'll land. I'll end with a little anecdote. This last Sunday we were up in Michigan and we have some places that I go to write. Mary was up there. We went biking. We went disc golfing. We had real sweet time together. But Sunday, it's always a conundrum where we're going to go to church. And um, so we went to this church that's a Baptist church over in Bridgman, which is just a little north of where our places are. And, you know, we've gone there a few times. Uh, their youth group has had a joint missions trip uh, with uh, the, the youth group of my former church, Trinity Reformed Church. And uh, so anyway, we show up. And as it happens, the pastor isn't there. And instead, they have the man who is the current executive director, CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Society. Oh, okay. Well, my father, before he died, was the executive director. While he was serving as the president of David C. Cook Publishing, he had mm. two hats. Okay. And he was also executive director of the Christian Medical and Dental Society. So I'm sitting there, and this man gets up and gives us a worldview of missions, medicine, of the changing nature of global medical missions of this, you know, this large thing. He'd just come from a conference down at that Christian church in uh, in Louisville where I think there were 3,000 medical professionals there and they had their annual conference for mm -hmm. CMDS. Anyhow, 
I was sitting there. I had just been, remember earlier, I told you that I had a file that I just saw upstairs, remember? Mm. Well, I had been going through my collection of things dad had sent me through the years. One of the things my dad had sent me was correspondence between him and Chick Coop, who was the the doctor of our family when I grew up and I had three siblings die. Mm. And Coop was their physician at mm. Children's Memorial in, in uh in Philip Philly. And, and so here I find these uh these letters, these these carbon copies of letters. Mm. Um when my dad is appointed the executive director of CM Christian Medical Society, he writes Coop because Coop, C. Everett Coop became the Surgeon General. Well, Coop had just resigned from the Christian Medical and Dental Society. He was the highest profile physician mm. who was Christian and evangelical in the country. Mm -hmm. He was an elder of 10th Presbyterian, and he was a dear family friend. Mm. You know, Coop worked on me. Mm. And if I ever tell you that story, I can't record it because you wouldn't, nobody would want to listen to it publicly because <laughs> it's, it's very embarrassing. But anyhow, um, and the letters between my father and Coop are my father saying, Chick, what on earth? You just resigned from the Christian medical. I just became the executive director. And you know what Coop said? Coop said, yes, I resigned because I've spent so many years trying to get Christian Medical and Dental Society to condemn abortion that I'm done. I've resigned. And then I have a couple more letters between the two of them where my dad says, I intend to lead Christian Medical and Dental Society to adopt a firm pro-life commitment. Mm. And then will you join back at that time, you know? Mm. And so um, the reason I bring that up is that I went back to the house after worship with Mary Lee. And Mary Lee's brother, Peter, her older brother, was there with two couples we've heard about our whole lives. And we know their names, you know, and they're Pete and Sharon's friends, and they get together with them regularly, you mm -hmm. know. Well, we knew they were over at one of the other houses on the property, and I am sure I had met uh, at least two of them before, but I knew the names more than I knew them, okay? So we went up to talk to them, and somehow— and this is stupid— but somehow it had not registered with me that they were both physicians. Okay. And so one of them was a physician. His wife went to dental school. They're Wheaton graduates. The other one was a physician. I think they were both in family medicine, family practice. And then the other one, his wife was a social worker. So you have four helping professionals, three of whom were trained either in dental school or medical school, two of whom, one has retired and the other is facing retirement soon in family practice, and they're both from northern Indiana. My father, this is true, after working with Christian physicians in Christian Medical and Dental Society, had an even lower judgment of them mm. than when he went in. Mm. And I remember asking him about this. Why, Dad? Why? Because my dad didn't have attitudes. Mm. He was not that kind of man. Mm. He was, he, he told jokes. He was, he was a delightful man. And he said, those doctors will not oppose abortion. And I said, why? And he said, the money. Yeah, the money. And the peer recognition. Yeah. Mm. I have known the most wonderful doctors 
okay? I mean, our best elder, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it, our best elder was Adam mm. Spady, who died in his 40s in his sleep a couple mm. of years ago. Mm. He reminded me of Lloyd-Jones because he was so clinical in dealing with the most horror mm. of sins, mm-hmm. which you have to deal with in an elders meeting. And he was so workmanlike. It was like he was in the emergency room mm. and blood was caked on the walls incommoding the passers-by. And it, <laughs> it mattered to him. He knew what was the right thing to do, and he did it, you know. But I have a bit of disillusionment about doctors, especially evangelical doctors, because so often I have seen them lying at the edges, and I as a pastor notice the edges. Mm. That's where the real man shows himself. And so going into this house and having dinner with these Two couples and then Pete and Sharon are are relatives, you know, my brother-in-law who had such an impact on my wife and his wife. You know what I was thinking. What would you be thinking, John? I'd just be curious as to where they were standing on the issue. But what would you expect? My experience tells me to expect little. (laughs) I was expecting little. And do you know... They absolutely were wonderful, wonderful. As a matter of fact, uh, I gave them all copies of Moby, the Kindle version of the Mm. e-text of the book. I also gave them Grace of Shame because those two books together Mm. really show who we are today in the church. And one of those two doctors said to me, you know, from the very beginning, I refused to prescribe any birth control or contraception. Well, that makes them pretty radical. I know. It yeah. was like, wow. so I wanted yeah. to end with this there because are. this was this last yes. weekend. Yes. And good for them. And there are others. I mean, I, I, I found one in Boston in my 22 years. It took me a long time to find that <laughs> one doctor. Roman Catholic? Yes. <laughs> but even, even she had to pay a price. You know, the, it's the peer acceptance that's also driving a lot of this. Mm. Plus the money is, is big. And the expenses of, of being an OBGYN doctor are extraordinary in a place like uh, New England with just the insurance rates could be $160,000, a year. So there's a lot of amazing uh, points of pressure on doctors. And I remember one uh, CMDA, uh, CMDS, uh, what is it, Christian Dental CMDS. Society. Yeah. Person said, well, all we're trying to do is get the, do- the doctors in the medical school to maintain a Christian witness at all let alone take a strong stand. And I said, well, good luck. But I think, again, the more you compromise on these issues, the more you become silent, the more you're actually training them how to be silent about these issues. Nonetheless, having said all that, I also want to say that the ultrasound, the use of ultrasound across the land over the last 30 years has been pioneered in many ways by these first wave of doctors who found their footing, found their moral voice, were courageous enough to mm-hmm. to, to partner with uh, pregnancy help clinics and to pioneer the use of ultrasound, when as a lot, this is not a group of people of moral courage. These are people who lower risk all the time in their life. And yet uh, today, 
much of the life-saving work that's going on through ultrasound is because there have been a small community of doctors across the country who have joined forces and found a way to actively engage in using ultrasound to Mm. save babies. And we want to make sure that we give them a shout out for that as Mm. well. Yes, there are many faithful doctors. There are many faithful. And Adam was so faithful that he shamed and embarrassed me publicly by the questions (laughs) that he asked in a medical forum at the hospital where he was a hospitalist at the time. I wanted to crawl under my seat because of his Christian witness. It was unbelievable. Wonderful. Yeah. I want us to end with you, uh, Ben, Mm. reading the text that John, your father-in-law, has mentioned several times. Would you read to us from Leviticus 20? All right. And this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. All right, Leviticus 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch, so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. There you go. Would you pray? Almighty and gracious Father, we bow our heads before you and we acknowledge that we live in a a dark and rebellious time with blood all around, that we have shed innocent blood and we have closed our eyes to those who are shedding innocent blood. We have been silent when we should speak. We have had a desire for the praise of men and for wealth and for comforts that that are shallow and empty when you have given us opportunities to stand with you and to experience the, your power your zeal your mercy your grace the wealth and riches of your spirit and the longing for another kingdom all these things lord we we stand and confess to you and pray that even now even now when your judgment would be ripe and ready and fully justified, you would even now grant us a spirit of repentance across the land, hmm. beginning with us as pastors and leaders, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to be able to confess and to become really a, a, a witness bearer to the message that we preach every week, that we have experienced confession and newness of life and uh, uh, a renewed spirit and freedom from guilt and especially we're focused on uh, abortion and all of its related uh, child killing mechanisms that even now Lord you would grant a spirit of repentance to the church and to our leaders and that you would raise up a a continuously growing army of good Samaritans who begin to intervene in the lives of women and couples and to help them to trust in you and to give life a chance 
and to begin to explore how you will provide for them in the days ahead. And we pray that this would continue to grow and expand across the world in places like China and Cuba and Nicaragua, and, uh, India, Pakistan. Uh, and that even now, Lord, we would see some things that would be marvelous in our eyes and humble us uh, and give you much praise and glory. And we thank you for this time together just to, to think through and to tell our stories and to bear witness uh, to the work of grace in, in, in our life as we've traveled and written and, uh, and observed. And we pray your blessing on all of those who uh, have shared in this conversation. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ben. I want to mention again, uh, first, I want to mention the book Abortion in the Church. You can get it on warhornmedia.com. You can buy it as an e-text, as a book. And if you don't have the money to buy it, send me an email. My address is tbbayly at gmail.com. Tell me the e-text you prefer and I will attach it to an email to you, and you can say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that book is absolutely unlike anything that you've seen written on the issue of abortion. And the footnotes, the citations, the arguments, the scholars that produced it are very good. But finally, most importantly, if you're a Christian and you believe in giving yourself to be a prophet, to the culture and to be politically active. And you've heard us talk about the lethargy and connivingness of the American church. You also have heard John say that he has an open door to a number of places around the world where they are still God-fearers and where they still understand the gift of the kindness of God, which leads us to repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage you to go to passionlife.org, passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N-L-I-F-E dot O-R-G, and support them financially. Support them in any way you can. Support them by sending this, uh, this podcast to everybody you know that's in medicine, anybody that's a woman and has God's gift of fruitfulness, I commend the organization. And John Piper has supported your work for many years, yes, correct? Yes, okay. Yes. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Me man. too. Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. NGA trains men for the work of ministry. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com.